Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. This morning, because I'm up here and instead of Paul, we're going to take a slight detour away from the His Story series, and we're going to go in a bit of a different direction this morning. I wanted to take this opportunity to actually revisit something that Paul mentioned last Sunday. He touched on, during his sermon on Abraham and Lot and the big choices that they faced, Paul mentioned our proximity to the world, right? He, he referenced that Lot was consumed by the world and Abraham had to make big decisions to stand against it or conform to it. To be set apart from the world and to appear different, not to be caught up in the many moral and ethical pitfalls that Sodom and Gomorrah faced and that we face today. Paul referenced a piece of scripture that we find in Romans 12, and it just kept coming back to me over and over as Paul was speaking on Sunday of this last week. And as I set uh, ahead of my task to write a sermon this week, I kept coming back to this passage that we find in Romans. I was curious, what is it that Paul was actually trying to convey when he, in his letter, writes to the church in Rome not to be conformed to the world? I was curious, what does it actually look to be set apart in our world today? It's a difficult question, and I think it has some difficult answers. We've all seen the past number of years how crucial it is to affirm our fundamental Christian doctrines, especially in a world that is repeatedly challenging the validity and relevancy of our faith. I think we must not mistake Christianity simply as a system of notions and a guide to speculation, but it is fundamentally about our relationship with the creator and a practical application of that relationship. And so, yes, amen. And so the Apostle Paul writes a great deal of instructions to the church. Paul wrote a lot, and he writes a lot of instructions. And in this letter to the Romans, he seeks to instruct and encourage a way of living that further solidified our way of being, one that is rooted in God's promises. And so what we find if you read the letter to the Romans, Romans 1 through 11 is all focused on doctrine. It's all focused on the core aspects of what we refer to as the gospel. But when Paul gets around to chapter 12, he makes a distinct transition And the last five chapters of the letter are a practical instruction on how to take the gospel and live it out. I think what Paul does is he provides instructions on what it means to be a living sacrifice, to show humility and service and love in action. The 11 chapters of doctrine highlight what we've been invited into and created for, and that is we've been created for a higher calling a higher purpose, something apart from this world, something that this world just doesn't teach. But it is something that Paul reaffirms for the church, not just in Romans, but throughout the New Testament. We see an invitation for something apart of this world. And so chapters 12 through 16 are Paul's attempt at giving all of us 
a roadmap for achieving such a calling. Paul's exhortations in Romans are generally reduced to three ideal principles for the Christian life, three principles of Christian duty. He references them multiple times throughout multiple letters, but in Romans it is highlighted by one, we have a duty to God. We have a duty to our creator. Number two, we have a duty to ourselves. We have a responsibility, the way that we carry ourselves and the way we live our lives. We cannot escape that responsibility. And third, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul affirms this time and time again. We cannot do anything apart from the greater community and kingdom of God. And so there is a responsibility that we have to those three distinct aspects. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 12. I'm going to reference Romans a great deal, but really we're going to distill those two verses because those are the two that speak to this conformity to the world and the renewing of our mind. And I want to discern what instructions Paul would have for us on what it means to be a living sacrifice and avoid confirming to the patterns of this world. So let, let's just go there. If you have the Bible in front of you, or if it's on an app and on your phone, uh, turn to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, one that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A couple things that I want to highlight really quick there. Paul's instructions for us not to conform to the world is so that we can find what God's true and perfect and pleasing will is. There is a purpose to go through the arduous task of not conforming to the world. There is an end goal in mind for Paul. But before we unpack those verses, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought about a story that I have read multiple times, and it routinely amazes me. I, I have a love for history. I have a love for culture. And so there is a story that goes like this. It's a true story. In 1463... The members of the city council of Firenze, that's Florence, Italy, they decided they needed a monument to enhance their city, because if there's anything that European cities don't have, it's monuments. So they needed one. And so they commissioned a sculptor to carve a giant statue to stand in front of the cathedral in the city. Someone suggested a biblical character wrought in a neoclassical style, maybe something that conveyed an expression of beauty and strength. And so they approached Agostino de Duccio, who agreed to their terms. Duccio went to the quarry near Cara and marked off a 19-foot slab of stone to be cut from pure white marble. Keep in mind, this is the equivalent of a two-story uh, two building. However, when cutting the stone, Duccio made a mistake, and he cut the slab too thin, when the block was removed and cut away from the, from the mountain, it fell, leaving a deep fracture down one side. The sculptor declared the stone useless and demanded another. 
So he went back to the city council and asked that they cut another slab. But the council refused, for it would be too expensive to cut another piece. So the block was untouched for 10 years until Antonio Rosilio tried to salvage the piece of marble. He too quickly deemed the marble unusable, and the block lay in the courtyard of the Opera de Dumo for another 25 years. Then, in 1501, the council approached another citizen, the son of a local official, and asked if he would complete the ambitious project, but he would have to use the broken slab. Fortunately for them, that young man was Michelangelo. He was 26 years old, filled to the brim with energy, skill, and imagination. So Michelangelo locked himself inside the workshop behind the cathedral to find a piece of marble that had been chipped, prodded at, and chiseled before being discarded by two previous sculptors. It took Michelangelo three years of chisel and polish before he had completed the now infamous project. When the work was finished, it took 40 plus men five days to bring it to rest before the cathedral. Archways had to be torn down and rebuilt. Narrow streets had to be widened. Then, after it was erected, people from across Europe came to see the 17-foot statue of David relaxing after the defeat of Goliath, which served as the inspiration for Michelangelo. It was even more than the city fathers had envisioned. The giant stone had been transformed from a massive fractured waste of rock into a masterpiece surpassing the art of either Greece or Rome. Transformation takes time. The Apostle Paul knew this. And he's very distinct as he writes to the Romans. So some context. In the book of Romans, as we approach this, Paul makes a number of statements throughout the book. Throughout his letter, he echoes in Romans 12 a sentiment he speaks to in Romans 6.11 when he speaks of being dead to sin but alive in Christ. And that's important because ancient philosophers often sought to persuade people to discard wrong beliefs and feelings and to recognize the truth about reality. Often this reality included truths about the purity of the inner person. Paul believed that people born from Adam, as found in Romans 3.23, Jews and Gentiles, they were sinful. He said this, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is found in Christ. He's speaking to a new identity that we find in the gospel, an identity that we find in the personage of Christ. Then, 11 times in chapter 4, Paul uses the term credited, emphasizing that God counts us as righteous in Christ. We have been credited. Our sins have been paid And using the same Greek term here, Paul urges us to count ourselves the way God views us. We can choose to live in a new way to the extent we embrace by faith the identity we find in Christ. 
And so Paul is writing this doctrinal statement. He's, he's reiterating the gospel and the impacts of it. And then he comes to Romans 12. And now he's providing some tangible application for this. And he starts by bringing up the image of a living sacrifice. Right? He urges us. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true form of worship. Paul urging us, he doesn't do this lightly. He only makes a couple declarations where he is urging the reader and and the readers, those that would have read the letter or heard the letter would have understood that emphasis was being placed on this. It reminds us that Paul's appeal is to our will. God calls us to make a choice about the way that we live for him. And it is Paul's pattern to begin a letter with a strong doctrinal section and follow with his exhortations for Christian living. And so Paul begs Christians to live a certain way in light of what God has done for them. And he references both brothers and sisters. He is speaking to the entirety of the church. This is not directed to one individual or another. This isn't for someone with a specific gifting. This is to the collective body. And when Paul uses this pattern throughout his writing, what he's saying is that the Christian life is dependent upon Christian doctrine. He is tying those two things together. We can choose to live a way that is directed by Christ, but we have to live based on those doctrines. We cannot separate them. And then Paul gets into God's mercies. In view of his mercy, he reminds us that we would do well to remember all that God has done for us. And he describes this repeatedly through Romans 1 through 11. He touches on a number of the mercies that we experience. That we are only able to offer ourselves because God has offered them to us. He makes it possible for us to do that which he has tasked us with. He reminds us because of his mercy, because of his mercy and his works in us, that we can live this new life. And God commands us to do this, and he makes it possible. Whereas the sinful are prone to sacrifice in order to obtain mercy, biblical faith teaches that the divine mercy provides the basis of sacrifice as the fitting response. The point Paul's trying to make is what comes first? Think of all the mercies that God has extensively provided, that Paul has extensively explained throughout Romans. We have justification from the guilt and penalty of sin. We have adoption in Jesus and identification with Christ. We have been placed under grace, not the law. We have been given the Holy Spirit to live within us, a part of our faith and application. We have the promise of help in all our affliction. We've been given the assurance of standing in God's election, confidence of a coming glory, confidence of no separation from the love of God. No longer will God withdraw himself from us. We have God with us at all times. We have confidence in God's continued faithfulness. That is a lot of mercy. And that is a lot of power. 
So in light of all this mercy, both past mercy, present mercy, and future mercy, Paul is begging us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're not doing this for, for no reason. We're doing this because of the gifts that we have been given. And we must believe that these divine mercies have persuasive powers over our wills because our human will is fragile and it is prone to error. And so we offer our bodies. This is connected with the idea of a living sacrifice. And and Paul is bringing to mind a, a type of priestly service that both Jew and Gentile would have understood. Spiritually speaking, our, our bodies are brought before God's altar. And it is best to see the body here as a reference to our entire being. Whatever we say about our spirit, our soul, the flesh, and mind, we know that they each reside within our body. When we give the body to God, the soul and spirit, they go with it. So when we present our bodies, it means what God wants is you, not just your work, not just your thoughts but he wants you, everything that is contained within it. You may do all kinds of work for God, but never truly give yourself over to him. Paul's imagery would be intelligible. Both the Old Testament times and some of his contemporaries in that day and age would use sacrifice figuratively for other expressions of devotion to God. We find multiple references both in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, about sacrifice and living sacrifice. But because most animal sacrifices were slaughtered, living sacrifice might strike those listening or reading those words as a bit of an oxymoron, while also stretching the image to cover continued devotion. You see, the previous appeal to the will... Paul makes an appeal, right? He says, I urge you. This is his appeal. That means that the will is to be the master over the body. The thinking of our modern age would say that our body must tell the will what to do. But the Bible says that our will must bring the body as a living sacrifice to God. The body is a wonderful servant, but it is a terrible master. Keeping it at God's altar as a living sacrifice keeps the body where it should be so the will can exercise. An ancient Greek or Roman in this period would never thought of presenting his body to God. This is an abstract thought to other readers through other faiths. They thought the body was so unspiritual that God wouldn't even care about it. But Paul shows here that God is concerned about our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.20 reminds us that God bought our bodies with a price. Our physical being is a part of what God wants. And that's why it's a living sacrifice. First century people, both Jews and pagans, knew firsthand what a sacrifice was all about. To beg that they make themselves a living sacrifice was a striking image. And the sacrifice is living because it is brought to the altar alive. And the sacrifice is living because it stays alive at the altar. A living sacrifice is an ongoing sacrifice. 
It is not for a period of time. It does not burn up. It remains and abides in front of God until the end of time. And this sacrifice, as Paul instructs, it is to be holy and pleasing to God. When we offer our body, God intends it to be a holy and pleasing sacrifice. The standard for sacrifices made to God under the new covenant are no less than the standard under the old covenant. In the Old Testament, every sacrifice had to be holy and pleasing to God. Why would we think it's any different now? Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy speak to this truth when it talks about bringing a sacrifice, bringing a male without blemish, or if there is a defect among it, if it is lame or blind, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And this brings up this idea of sacrifice. The readers, the listeners would have understood a sacrifice offered to God, especially the Jews. They would have understood what a burnt offering looked like. The idea of a sweet aroma to the Lord is almost always linked to the idea of an offering made by fire because as they would offer an animal sacrifice, they would burn incense with it so it would cast off a sweet aroma. I don't know how many of you have ever worked out on a farm, but for myself, I'm a city boy through and through. Grew up in Calgary, lived in Calgary my whole life, and then I went and married a farm girl. No idea why I made that decision, but I did. She convinced me. And the first, the first time that I went out to spend time with her family, they make Mennonite sausage from scratch. It's delicious. I love it. I cook it all the time. But the first time that I went out to spend time with her family, before we were married, they're butchering animals and making sausage. And they're burning some of the carcasses. It smells awful. As a city kid, I was not having a lot of fun. I liked the end product. I didn't like the work to get there. But an offering, especially a burnt offering, would burn incense so that it would be a sweet aroma and pleasing to the Lord. In a burnt offering, the entire sacrifice was given to the Lord. Not every sacrifice involved the entire animal, but a burnt offering required the entire animal. And they would have understood this. In some sacrifices, the one, the one offering the sacrifice and the priest who shared in it would have some type of meal coming from that animal, but never in the burnt offering. The holiness we bring to the altar is a decision for holiness and yielding to the work of holiness in our life. It requires a burnt offering. As we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God makes our life holy by burning away all the impurities that are a part of it. And this is what leads to true and proper worship. Other translations in this passage, they use the wording reasonable service. The ancient Greek word for reasonable, which is logikos, can be translated of the word, as it is in 1 Peter 2.2. So reasonable service is a life of worship according to God's word. The sacrifice of an animal was reasonable service, but only for the one bringing the sacrifice, not for the sacrifice itself. Under the new covenant, we have a far greater sense of mercy 
we have a far greater gift. So it is reasonable that we offer a far greater sacrifice than just another unblemished animal, but we offer ourselves as that living sacrifice. So that is Paul's pretext to Romans 12.2. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And philosophers, hearers, they want us to base all our decision on reason. But Paul adds an eschatological, right, an end time perspective that this world, that the renewing of your mind then includes thinking as citizens of the coming of the new world, not just the one that we live in. There is an end time perspective. There's a goal beyond this world that we need to respond to. And so Paul instructs us to resist conformity to the world and embrace the transformation that comes in Jesus Christ. Again, he's just given us 11 chapters of doctrine, and now he's getting back around to the tangible application of that doctrine. So he instructs us, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? Do not be conformed to this world. That's what Paul referenced last week. This warns us that the world system, the popular culture and manner of thinking that is in rebellion against God will try to conform us to its pattern, and that process must be resisted. The culture of this world will always try to find ways to explain things aside from Christ and aside from God. I think Paul did a wonderful job as he's gone through this Old Testament series highlighting that fact. But we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is the opposite of conformity. The battleground between conforming to the world and being transformed is in the mind. It is in the mind of every believer. And what Paul is strikingly declaring to every reader, to everyone who hears this letter, is that Christians have to think different. We can't think the way the world thinks. Otherwise, how do we set ourselves aside, apart from it? So if you're saying to yourself today, I don't want to be conformed to this world. I want to be transformed, but I don't know how to do it. How do I do it? Well, you need to renew your mind. You need to think different. As a counselor, one of the things that I find is the problem that many Christians have, the, the, the problem that many Christians have, the way we live our life, is that it is based on feelings or that we're only concerned about what we do. See, the life based on feelings says, how do I feel today? And I'll make decisions based on that. How do I feel about my job today? I'm going to make decisions about that. How do I feel about my wife? Do I really love her today? I guess I'll give her a little extra attention. Oh, I don't like her today. I'm not going to give her extra attention. How do I feel about worship? Do I really want to go to church on Sunday? I'm not really feeling like worship. I'm feeling a little down. I'm not excited to go, so I'm just not going to go. How do I feel about the preacher, about what he shares? How do I feel about this piece of Christian doctrine? Or how do I feel about this difficult-to-reconcile piece of Scripture that I just don't know what to do with? This life by feeling will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores the renewing of the mind. It is relying on the human condition to exercise judgment. And emotions are not a suitable place to make decisions because they rely entirely on our human condition. 
Then, the opposite side of that is the life based on doing says, don't give me your theology, just tell me what to do. Give me four points for this or seven keys for that. Give me my good deeds checklist and I'll make sure everything's done by the time I head to heaven and I'm good. The life of doing will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores the renewing of the mind. And this was the key struggle of the law for the Pharisees. We see this played out through the New Testament over and over. They could not reduce everything to a way of doing. And Christ went after them for that point over and over. Now it's important to note, God is never against the principles of feeling or doing. He is a God of powerful and passionate feelings and emotions. And he commands us to be doers. Yet feelings and doing are completely insufficient foundations for the Christian life. The first question cannot be, how do I feel, or what should I do, but rather they must be, what is true here, and what does God's word say? Start there. What Paul is striking at is this, what is our starting point? Where do we begin our thought process? Does it begin in our own needs or wants? Our own feelings, our desires, or is it rooted in God's instructions? So even when I feel I want this, I know I need to do something different. And I can tell that my will is betraying my faith. To be transformed, right? This is Paul's idea. This whole way of thinking is a completely different model. This is the transformed. This is the ancient Greek word metamorpho. Right? It describes the process of metamorphosis. The same word is actually used to describe Jesus in his transfiguration that we find in Mark 9. Right? This is a glorious transformation. And the only other place Paul uses this word for transformed is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I don't love pulling scripture out of place, but this is very applicable, and it is what Paul is also speaking to in Corinthians as well. And he says this, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. For Paul, this transformation and renewing of our mind takes place as we behold the face of God, spending time in his glory. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like us kneeling at the altar of God. That's what it sounds like to me. And then he says, the whole point of this is to prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. My biggest struggle in this generation with a lot of my contemporaries, with a lot of my pastoral colleagues and counseling colleagues, is that we are making decisions based on how we feel rather than what God's word says. And as we're transformed on the inside, the proof should become evident that we discern what the perfect will of God actually is. Not what I want it to be, but what it is. That the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is found in our lives. Paul references this, right? He writes in, in his letter to the Galatians, right? We all know that passage where he mentions the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit will be evident if what? If Christ is dwelling in us and exercising his will through us. There will be evidence in our lives if we are being transformed. 
But make no mistake, there will also be evidence in your life if you're being conformed, conformed to the world. So the story of the statue of David, it draws us back to the person it imitates. David, David of the Bible, David and Goliath, right? Who was he? Well, he was the son of a shepherd, the youngest son, living in total obscurity. His job was to look after livestock. He was anointed to be king, but then had to wait years and years for that to come to fruition. In that time, he became a soldier, then a hero, and then exiled. He became a king, led a nation, and then became jealous. King David is, upon first glance, a beautiful biblical story of God's higher calling and transformation. Look closer, read further, and we find a story of humanity's struggle to follow God. Saul struggled, David struggled. Even after becoming king, David still struggled to follow after God's own heart. A man literally known as following after God's own heart struggled to do that day after day. Transformation takes a lot of time. Look closer at the life of David and we see that there were many imperfections in his life that still required the transforming power of the relationship with God. Chuck Swindoll describes one of God's favorite methods of training as monotony. He says this, that's being faithful in the menial, insignificant, routine, regular, unexciting, uneventful, daily tasks of life, life without a break, without the wine and roses, just dull, plain life, just constant, unchanging, endless hours of tired monotony as you learn to be the man or woman of God with nobody else around, when nobody else notices, and when nobody even cares, that's how we learn to king it. I would be hard-pressed to see many of you read that quote and go, sign me up. I love monotony. That sounds thrilling to me. No, it doesn't. And this is the biggest struggle that we face because in our world today, we become conformed to a life of pleasure. We become conformed to simply seeking what we desire. And it's far, far more exciting in the moment than that. Transformation isn't always exciting. We often get bored of the process. We look for something else to satisfy our lives, believing that we are owed more than we're receiving. I've struggled this within my own life. Being transformed through Christ to work in my life on the issues that I need work on. And when I get bored, I start to let my eyes wander. And I find other things that look far more appealing in the moment than sitting at the altar and letting God burn away the impurities in my life. Just like the statue of David, if you ever get a chance to visit it, you will find that there's actually many imperfections in the statue. Repair work over countless generations done to the statue after the limbs have been broken off. 20 years after they erected the statue in front of the cathedral, there was a slight revolt in Venice, uh, in, or in Florence, rather, in Italy. And a, a wooden bench got tossed at the statue, broke his left arm clean off, had to put it back on. If you look at the ankle, the, the left ankle is actually cracked. 
and it still shows what they think is the original crack that ran through the slab, and they anticipate that if they ever tilted the statue more than a mere 15 degrees, the entire thing would crumble under its own weight because the crack could not sustain the 17 stories of marble. For Michelangelo, creating the statue of David took years transforming a giant slab of marble, one that had been broken, into something beautiful. It took an immense amount of time, dedication, patience, and passion. Knowing that making a mistake while carving the stone could have a permanent consequence meant that his agonizing work carried an immense amount of pressure. His life became constant, unchanging, Endless hours of tired monotony with no one else around, no one else watching, no one else caring except for the finished product. Allowing God to transform our lives is no different in a lot of respects. It can be exhausting. It can be monotonous. We find that much of the work of God transforming our lives is done in private without anyone watching or noticing. And so we find many other things in life to capture our attention, which slowly, bit by bit, take us away from the task that requires a dedication with no equal. The patience we must have to renew our minds when the world provides simple but instant pleasures is difficult to obtain. The pressure and consequences of sin make it easy to throw in the towel and just conform to the patterns of the world. It's the far easier option. I don't blame anyone who does it. I'm as infallible as all of you. And the conforming to the world sure looks appealing from time to time. But separating ourselves from the world, letting our minds be renewed and thinking different, it comes with a cost. It also comes with the reward of something beautiful being constructed. Something constructed that will magnify God's power something that will bring others to know his perfect and pleasing will. And I can think of nothing that the world needs more today than to know God's perfect and pleasing will. They doubt it exists. They don't believe that God has a perfect and pleasing will. But if we allow our lives to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we can show the world just what can be built. So a few apps today, a few applicable pieces. First, Paul here explains how to live out the will of God in Romans 12. He says, keep in mind the rich mercies of God to you, past, present, and future. Remember God's mercies. Remember what God has done for you. Two, act as an act of intelligent worship. Decide to yield your entire self to him. Are you willing to really give God everything or are you still only casting off bits and pieces of yourself? Third, do not be, uh, or resist conformity to the thoughts and actions of this world. Do not be conformed. So take stock of your worldly influences. Where do you think your eyes have wandered and you're allowing the world to conform your thinking? And is that conforming your theology and doctrine to suit the world instead of suiting the scriptures? Four, renew yourself daily. Focus on God's word and fellowship with him. This is why I believe that throughout scripture we see repeated urges to not get away from prayer, from worship, 
from Scripture. We need to renew ourselves daily because it is far too easy to let our eyes wander from what God wants for us. And finally, be patient. Be patient with yourselves. Be patient with others. Sometimes be patient with God. Transformation is not easy. I'm sure Michelangelo thought about quitting once or twice. I don't know that. If I was carving that, I would have given up like a day in. But be patient. Transformation takes time. Just don't give up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as the worship team comes back up, God, and as we respond in true and proper worship, God, as we respond to your word, God, would we just be reminded that we need to renew our mind? that we need, we need your word to be our starting point. Not our thoughts, not our feelings, not our desires, but we need you to be the place from which we start and dwell. So God, I pray that as we are here today and as we go into the week, God, that we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, that we would kneel in front of the altar and give ourselves to you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.